Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the 16th and 17th centuries and beyond, certain sexual acts were criminalized. In England, for example, under Henry VIII, sodomy, which, as we'll see, was a capacious category that covered all sorts of things, became a capital crime in 1542. Waterlord Hungford was the first to be convicted of it. In France at the same time, which is where we're going to be talking about today, sodomy was also illegal, even though France actually in 1791 became one of the first countries in the world to make homosexual acts between men legal. Now, obviously, given that we're talking about sex and crime, the language and descriptions get a little fruity at times in today's podcast. And I thought I'd warn you in case you're a bit squeamish or you happen to be listening to this whilst you're eating. But I think it's worth listening to because it sheds so much light on what both authorities and ordinary people thought about sexuality. My guest today is Dr. Tom Hamilton. Tom is an assistant professor in early modern social and cultural history at Durham University. He obtained his doctorate from New College, Oxford, and was previously a research fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge. And his book, Pierre de la Troy and His World in the Wars of Religion, came out with OUP in 2017 and is out in paperback this August. But today we're drawing on Tom's work that's published in two journal articles. And as we're talking about sodomy and crime in early modern France, I think we probably need to start, Tom, with talking about definitions. What were the range of uses of the term sodomy in 16th and 17th century France? It's a very interesting term and it's a very complex one. It's one that has a different meaning in the 16th and 17th centuries, depending on who is speaking or who is writing. In a sense, it's a word that belongs to theology and the law. In a way, it's a moral crime. All sorts of categories of crime could be contained within the term sodomy. It doesn't mean literally homosexuality, which might be one resonance that the term has. The criminal courts sometimes prosecuted acts linked to same-sex desire under the term sodomy, that label that they gave it. But the term may cover acts of sex with animals. It might cover public masturbation. It might cover quite serious events of sexual abuse. But the way that the judges or the priests or theologians use the word sodomy doesn't always match on with how people might use the term in everyday life. For example, a common line of defence will be if somebody is accused by the courts, 
the court says, you're accused of sodomy. And the person says, I don't even know what that is, because the concept was one that belongs to the realm of theology and the law, and perhaps isn't such common currency in everyday life. Maybe that's a useful excuse for them in terms of dodging an accusation made by the courts. But there's a difference between the worlds of elite theology and the law, defining sodomy as a moral crime, all sorts of moral and sexual excess, and how people may understand the term in everyday life that doesn't always match or doesn't even comprehend those theological or moral criminal uses. Okay, that's really interesting. But let's first of all talk perhaps about the sources that you're using, because you're drawing these sodomy cases out of the criminal archives of the Parlement of Paris. What was the Parlement of Paris and how did it work? The Parlement of Paris is the highest criminal court in the Kingdom of France, in the old regime. It's the highest court because it sits on top of a pyramid of appeal courts. There are middle-ranking and lower courts in cities, in rural areas, in regions. And typically, anybody who's accused of a serious crime in one of those local courts in the first instance can appeal to the Parlement. And then the magistrates in Paris will try their case again. This means that French criminal law is quite distinctive in the early modern period because there are several layers of jurisdiction and it adds an added level of rigour, the judges would say, to their procedures. Typically, the magistrates in Paris look down on the judges working in lower courts, thinking, oh, they're just a rural seigneur, they don't know the law, they will just come up to whatever decision comes to their minds. We need to check this in Paris, bring that case on appeal, typically funded by the prosecutor or the courts, not the appellant themselves, and try it all over again to confirm that justice was done properly. And how big is the jurisdiction of the Parlement? How many people is it governing over? It's vast. The geographical jurisdiction ranges from as far north as Calais. It goes as far southwest as La Rochelle. It goes as far southeast as Lyon. Or on the eastern borders, it will border with the Duchy of Lorraine. Within that jurisdiction, that covers about half the French population, France is roughly 20 million people in this period. The Parlement Paris covers about 8 to 10 million people. So that's a lot of people who could potentially, if they're accused before a lower court, come to Paris and appeal. Whether that actually happens in practice is another question. And actually, given that we're talking about that many people and you're looking over a couple of centuries... We don't have that many cases then of sodomy. Not at all. So in the complete sample of cases that I was working on, which covers the full surviving criminal archives of the Parlement Paris from the beginning when they're systematic in the mid-16th century until 1700 as a logical cutoff point, just it has to stop somewhere, then there are 131 cases of sodomy that involve acts of same-sex desire, prosecuted as sodomy, or acts of abuse. There are about an equal number of cases that we might call bestiality. So that's 300 cases over a century and a half in a jurisdiction that court that at any given moment has 8 to 10 million people living in that area. So this is a tiny number of cases. And there's a question, is this all of the cases? Are there more perhaps that happened and were tried in a local court that didn't come to Paris and appeal? That's possible. But given that the penalty for sodomy was death, those cases should have come to Paris. The Parisian judges would have ticked off the local judges if it didn't come on appeal. We can come back to this potentially as another question of why would anyone prosecute sodomy as a crime before a court in the first place? 
So we're certainly not talking here about the frequency of homosexuality or same-sex acts or desire in this society. We're talking about an extremely rare instance of exceptional prosecution of a crime with a very flexible label that in extraordinary circumstances, somebody is brought before a court and then it went on appeal to Paris. So whilst it is possible but not likely that there were more cases at lower courts, it is very likely and highly possible that there were many, many more cases of people acting on same-sex desire that doesn't make it into these records. Exactly. My starting assumption here is that same-sex desire is something that will be experienced in all cultures and all societies. The interest here is how does a society define same-sex desire, what language does it use, and how is it part of broader society and culture? How does it fit in social hierarchies? How do institutions make laws that adapt to different acts, forms of desire and ways of life? And there's a rare moment of criminalization here, which is interesting more broadly, because I think there's a common assumption that the pre-modern period is one of intense persecution of moral crimes, religious crimes, heresy, sodomy, which today in a modern society, in the West, we would not consider whatsoever as crimes. We're in a moment of, from the 20th century onwards, liberalization, changing reforms. I started working on these cases at the moment of same-sex marriage being legalized in Britain, of the same discussion in France too. And I think what really struck me about these findings is that there were some cases prosecuted as sodomy, up to half of them did end up with a death penalty. But that is a tiny number of cases over such a long period of time. And I can only conclude that idea about the pre-modern period as an age of persecution of sexual and moral crimes has to be revised. This is an age of toleration. That's really fascinating. And of course, it immediately makes me think of the case of Naomi Wolf's DPhil thesis, which was looking at the number of men that she thought were killed or executed for sodomy in the 19th century. And Matthew Sweet demonstrated that actually it's quite the opposite, that when it says death recorded, it means that they weren't executed. It means that that is the sentence that should have been passed on them, but it is not being passed. And it's the fact it's not being passed as what death recorded means. So in other words, it turns our expectation on its head. I think that was a really interesting example of how quite ingrained assumptions about the past are inherited and sometimes recycled, and shows the importance of really careful work with archival sources. In these cases, the small number of cases there, the archival documents confirm those that certainly were executed. There are some examples of cases where the archives even include interrogations immediately before execution, sometimes on the scaffold, which will break into the court trying to ask the condemned to give a final confession in public. They often don't confess in that sense. It's not what the court wants to hear. But there are some interesting parallels in terms of the public image of justice given by the courts and how it was implemented in practice. For example, often it's assumed that in this period, people accused of crimes such as sodomy, heresy or witchcraft were burned at the stake. The procedure in the Parlement of Paris's jurisdiction would be to announce in a verdict and read that verdict out in the courtroom at the place of execution, that somebody would be burned alive. But behind the scenes, the judges have quite complex discussions about how should the execution take place. They don't want a scene. They don't want things to get out of control. They expect that people in the crowd would often be sympathetic to what was happening. They would not want somebody to suffer unduly. So for example, the public verdict might say burned alive, and the judges will then write a second letter 
to the, for example, subordinate court enacting the execution or the execution themselves saying, before the execution, make sure they're quietly strangled and you will burn the body afterwards. So this is obviously a horrendous punishment, but in 16th and 17th century terms, the magistrates of the Parlement want to ensure they're doing a moderate version of that penalty because they want to ensure a seemly spectacle, one that does not get out of control and challenge the authority of the court and its officials at the scene of the execution. It's interesting in the procedure of executions, going back to the theme of the label sodomy itself, quite what the court wants to announce. Often the Parliament and its judges and lower courts don't really want to explain to the crowd who might be witnessing execution really what was involved in this crime. And the ambiguity of the word sodomy is very useful to them at that sense. They may announce that the verdict is this person is condemned for sodomy, or they may even say they're condemned of villainous crimes or horrendous crimes that shouldn't be known because they fear that if they explain what was going on in these often quite complex cases, people might find out about something that they would not want to hear about, or it will be unseemly at the scaffold to mention what is signified by sodomy directly. So the ambiguity of the term sodomy helps to smooth over problematic questions about sexuality and moral order at the scene of the scaffold for the audiences who might be witnessing it. Yes, they don't want anyone getting any ideas. But also, I suppose, (laughs) there's a sense in which if you actually associate same-sex desire with cases of abuse or bestiality, you are tarring it with the same brush. You're making it seem as if it's something absolutely awful, which, of course, is what they think at this time, by association. This is the difficulty of interpreting these cases, because the same moral and legal language is applied to such a wide range of instances. It makes no sense in modern terms, the sheer complexity and diversity of instances labelled with the crime of sodomy. But the court has so many phases of applying these terms, which sound odd in everyday life, that nevertheless make sense in their practice of justice, that makes them seem exemplary, seem extremely punitive when that rare execution does take place. But what they're concealing is the sheer infrequency of those judgments and those events. So let's talk about some really telling details. I wondered if you fancied reading the first paragraph of your article from the Journal of History of Sexuality, because it's a very good guide to a case from 1588, as we'll see, of Alexandre Jouen. Of course. During a series of interrogations in late 1588, the magistrates of the criminal chamber of the Parlement of Paris tried Alexandre Jouen on appeal from the subordinate court of the Châtelet in Paris for what they called the extraordinary crime and the sin of sodomy. Noël Bires, who'd been driving his cart outside Paris by the gate of Saint-Antoine, testified that he saw Jouan, a merchant who sold charcoal, lying with a baker in a ditch on top of the man with his shirt pulled off. At first, Bires thought that Jouan was with a wench and he wanted to see what they were doing. But when they stood up, he realised that it was a man who took a handful of grass to wipe himself down after he'd been underneath this man, Jouan. Under torture on the rack, Jouan cried out, Jesus, Mary, San Nicolas, my God, misericorde, I'm breaking, kill me. But he continued to deny the charge of sodomy. Finally, the Parlement sent Jouan back to the Châtelet, from which he was to be released, unless more information came to light that proved his guilt. Now, this is a fascinating case because it shows us exactly 
the role of denunciation and gossip. Bires doesn't name the other man, but he obviously knew him because he says that Joanne is lying with a baker. He doesn't jump to the conclusion that these two who are bare-chested have had a fight. There's a sense that he has prior intelligence here. It's very curious. It partly shows the difficulty of interpreting the documents. Who are the witnesses? What's going on here? Partly these people who are witnessing can't see very clearly what's happening. They're in a ditch. They've got their shirts off. That helps Jean make his defence because he can say, well, how can you trust that witness? They couldn't see clearly. But also, Jean says to build his defence further, actually, the person who accused me to begin with was my brother-in-law. And he sent two carters, people who pull carts, to spy on him. So as you say, there's some prior knowledge going on and potentially behind the scenes, though we don't really know, some sort of enmity or rivalry and a falling out that may have led to that accusation happening in the first place. So what happens to Joao? He's released. This is a really interesting case because, to begin with, the Châtelet is the main court in Paris and it's not very far from the Parlement. Any people who came on appeal from the Châtelet to the Parlement just crossed the bridge, the Pont au Change, with a sergeant of the court. So he's not gone very far for the appeal, but as I mentioned, the Parlement wants to oversee how the lower courts work. If a case involves torture, the Parlement magistrates certainly want to reinterrogate that case all over again. So the lines that I quoted from Jean under torture on the rack show the extreme pain he's put through. But the magistrates, which is common for torture in courts across the period, they do exert dreadful violence in interrogations. But the magistrates also don't want to trust any confessions drawn out only from torture. They want to interrogate again, check that someone was telling the truth. And in this case, Juan didn't confess. He blamed his brother-in-law for accusing him unjustly. There wasn't really much evidence. Some witnesses saw from a distance. They couldn't be certain. That's enough to go on. It's enough to have a suspicion that a case is worth prosecuting. Don has to have a motive to prosecute, and his brother-in-law clearly paid for this prosecution too. But it's not what the judges would look for when they wanted to have a full proof. They wanted to have two valid eyewitnesses to confirm a judgment. And they didn't have this here. So I think the case to me reveals some of the interest of what might be involved in sodomy cases, but also a broader point that even when some cases came to court, it was so difficult to prosecute. I think partly the fact it's difficult to prosecute anyway partly explains why so few people in the first place bother to bring a case before the court, because they couldn't be certain of the outcome. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating that on the one hand, you've got this official punishment that those convicted of sodomy would be burnt alive. On the other hand, it's almost impossible to prosecute someone for the case. Why is it so legally complex? This is an interesting point that, again, in terms of how we might think about the pre-modern period, we may expect it to be an age of not very sophisticated criminal justice. I would say in the terms of the time, the Parlement Paris and many of the courts underneath the Parlement in the hierarchy of appeals in France were fairly advanced. The magistrates have a law degree. They studied Roman law. They've studied the textbooks of lawyers like Baldus and Bartolus, the late medieval Italian jurists, to explain what evidence means, what standard you need to meet to find somebody guilty. Two valid eyewitnesses makes a full proof. One witness is no witness, they say. So they won't prosecute unless they're sure. 
they know the value of material evidence, which might be a half proof that can let them begin. So some of the cases begin, for example, with what they call sullied sheets or physical injuries. You can't prosecute fully and find a conviction on that basis, but you might be willing to begin a case. Partly the comparison to England helps here. I think here I've inherited some of the haughtiness of the Parisian judges I study. Basically in France, like in Spain, Italy, many other courts, Jehovah's Empire, the German lands, the courts apply inquisitorial procedure. All the interrogations are written down. There are many phases of interrogation. Often the accused are confronted with the witnesses to confirm their deposition later on. There are many sages to confirm that the courts have followed the correct procedure. In England, most interrogations aren't written down. Quarter sessions or assize records may be over very, very quickly. The standard of evidence does not need to apply the Roman law of proof. So it's not the same sense of rigor that the French courts would apply. Now, there's a danger here of me accepting at face value what the Parliament judges say. They, of course, congratulate themselves for their great legal learning and rigorous probity. And when I look at their archives, they're huge. It does seem very impressive. People at the time would still criticize them for being excessively vigorous or punitive or for not prosecuting cases, leaving crime unpunished. They get pushed and pulled on both sides and criticized. But in 16th and 17th century terms, this is very rigorous criminal justice. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's talk a little bit about the case that you found from the Benedictine Abbey of the Holy Trinity of Morinier, because this is a case that's extraordinarily detailed and has a rather different conclusion. This is a really interesting case. In a way, this was the case I found most interesting to work on for the whole sample, because it was one that I was able to match up with documents about the community at the time the allegations taking place. This is the case of Pierre Logerie, his nickname was the gendarme of Morigny, the guard or the soldier, the gatekeeper of Morigny. And he worked as the porter of the abbey. And he was condemned to death in Paris in 1561 after a trial that happened to begin with in Morigny. Now, Morigny is south of Paris. It's near Etampes. So it's now, I suppose, the wider commuter belt south of Paris. But at the time, it was quite a remote, very small town. The abbey's quite wealthy. It's Abbot Jean Euro at the time was from the prestigious family of the Euro, their magistrates in Paris. He's related to the Chancellor, Michel de l'Hôpital, and its income from its lands were very valuable. So it's quite a prized abbey to be the abbot of. And Logerie is accused of sodomy. The allegations are quite complicated, and because the allegations are difficult to evaluate, the Parlement brought not just Pierre Logerie himself to Paris and appeal, they also brought 16 witnesses from Morigny all the way to Paris, the person involved in making the allegation in the first place, the prior of the abbey, paid their food and board, paid for their travel. And in Paris, the magistrates tried the case all over again. And these witnesses were, for the most part, young men who worked in the vineyards and the fields around the abbey. And they accused Logerie of sexually abusing them, of forcing them to have sex with him. And Logerie denied all of this. And it becomes one of the biggest scandals of the whole series of documents of sodomy cases in the Parlement Paris. And it takes place just one year before the French Wars of Religion break out. So there's an interesting context of religious tensions as well as social and moral tensions in that community. So this is almost an impossible question to answer. This is the question that all historians face. What do you think actually happened in this case? I often approach that question from the mindset of the judges because at least they have their own standard to decide what actually happened. And as I said, their standard is two valid witnesses. This is partly, I think, why the prior of the Abbey wanted to send all 16 witnesses to Paris to make sure they could all give their version of the story. There's a risk. Did they discuss in advance what they would say? Their testimony slightly aligns. But they all say that they worked for Logerie in the Abbey. 
They worked in the vineyards, some of them worked in the fields, others worked in the gardens of the abbey itself or with their printing press. They say that Logerie employed them and they often slept with him. They shared his bed. In one case, one of the witnesses, Cain Poulet, said that he slept with Logerie and Logerie asked his father if that would be okay. This might sound strange, but actually in the early modern period, sharing beds was quite common. It's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of closeness. It didn't necessarily imply sexual relations to sleep with somebody. That same ambiguity is in the language, did you sleep with Logerie, the judges say. And often they say, yes, I slept with him, but in the night he forced me to have sex with him. And they use quite stereotypical language, which fits with, I think, the Roman law, and the canon law about sodomy that says, he treated me like a man treats his wife, which is a quite ambiguous term that I think does suggest that he forced them into having sex with him. And so all these young men say that that's the case. And they say that Logerie overpowered them. One witness, Guillaume Olivier said he couldn't be the master over Logerie. Logerie is in his forties. The incidents that took place that lead to accusations took place over a decade. So these young men, and I'm using that phrase fairly vaguely because the court records do, they're aged between late teens and mid-twenties. So they say they were children. He forced them to sex. That's the word they use, forced. We could read this as a rape case. And they essentially say he raped them. And crucially, they need to say that because that means that Logerie is guilty of sodomy and they are not guilty because according to the law of the time, Roman law, canon law, if they said that they were consenting partners to have sex with him, they would also be guilty of sodomy and they would be potentially condemned to death. So they wanted to make their allegation that way. That's quite a common way of the cases unfolding, but this case shows it more directly. But if we think about the fact that they agreed to sleep with him, they knew his reputation. Somebody said that Logerie was known to have a wife called Bouveau, a man who was his wife, Bouvot does not appear in the Paris interrogations. I don't know what happened to him. Another witness said that Logerie was called, this is a quote from the document, a bugger in the street. That was the insult somebody said to him. And he did nothing about it. So he had a reputation and they knew this. So potentially they were at risk because Logerie was their employer. They felt pressured here. It's a very ambiguous and tense situation. I found it personally a difficult case to read it's very difficult to judge the claims and counterclaims made in the courtroom, which have such importance as a matter of life and death. So the magistrates thought Logerie was guilty. In terms of what actually happened, the problem is they're accusing him of the crime of sodomy. But what even is sodomy? It's very difficult to define here. So the magistrates felt they had sufficient evidence to condemn him for this situation. That's what happened in terms of what the witnesses say. And that's what happens in the court documents. But what I found so interesting for this case is that if you step outside of the court documents and look at what's happening in the abbey, in the town more generally, a different perspective becomes apparent. Nowhere in the documents in the criminal case is there a mention of the Abbot Uro. But in a history of the abbey, written 100 years later, Uro takes centre stage. The history is supposed to be the glorious history of the abbots in their succession, especially the Uro family. But four years before the trial happened in Paris. So around the time these allegations happening with Logerie, there was a dreadful theft in the abbey. So some thieves turned up, they went into the church of the abbey and they stole all of the relics and they burned any of the textiles in there as well, including the cope they would wear to worship. 
And the monks wake up one morning, the abbot runs in and says, this is dreadful what's happened. And they organise a prosecution. So the abbey can prosecute crime when it wants to. They prosecute the thieves. They catch them thanks to someone from the town who chases them down. And the history said that Jean Hurot died with great fires of tribulation on his conscience, meaning the theft. But they don't mention the sodomy scandal. So I, I thought from that phrase, what fires of tribulations may an abbot have in the middle of the Reformation, as the wars of religion are just beginning, to know that under his watch, this sex scandal is happening in his monastery. And this is a time when Protestants were accusing Catholics, especially monks, of having sex with one another, of having no morals whatsoever, of not living up to the idea of monastic chastity. And yet, within the Abbey, this is taking place. So what gets hidden from the criminal archive, I think, is just as important as what gets recorded. And crucially, in terms of why did this case come to court in the first place, what the magistrates say, it only was prosecuted when that abbot died. Ah, so we've got a fascinating instance here of something probably being covered up. Because I had wondered why the case was initiated, because that seems to be the key to it all. It's a difficult question, and it's one the magistrates ask every single witness. How did this not get known earlier? If everybody in the village or the town was gossiping about Langerie as a sodomite for a decade, how was he not prosecuted? This is quite common, for example, in witchcraft cases. Mm -hmm. Allegations, slander, gossip builds up for a long time, but it takes an extraordinary moment of change where everything turns on its head before a prosecution begins. Here, in 1561, the abbot Jean Euro dies. He's succeeded by the next abbot, Jean Uro, a different Jean Uro, a relative. It's all kept in the family very closely. The second abbot in this case, he is far away. He's the French ambassador to Venice. He'd early been the ambassador to Istanbul. He's really involved in Mediterranean diplomacy. I looked at his letters. He doesn't mention this sex scandal at all. He's far too concerned with the relationship between France, Venice, Italian states, and the Ottoman Empire to even think about Lagerie and the vine workers in the abbey. It's just beneath him. He still takes in the revenue from the lands around. That's core to his family standing. But my hypothesis, and I can't prove this, it's not in the documents, because it's a cover-up, I would say. I think essentially with the abbot gone, Logerie's rivals in the abbey can bring the charge against him. He mentions someone blackmailing him, and the case files at least say that the prior of the abbey, the number two, Olivier Doche, instigated the allegation. The Benedictine rule often predicted clashes between the abbot and the prior. Potentially here the clash is present, but especially between the prior, the number two in the abbey, and the porter. So with the old abbot gone, the prior has the chance to bring the prosecution. He denounces the case to the court, and the local church issues a summons, what's called in French law the monitoire, where at mass on a Sunday, the priest reads out, everyone assembled, that there's been an allegation, please come forward if you know anything. And that seems the moment when a lot of these young men did all step forward. In a way, if they didn't, they would be at risk themselves of being accused of a crime. So that's when everything comes out into the open. The open secret, in a sense, is confirmed in a court of law and the prosecution continues thereafter. It's fascinating, Tom. You've really made clear to us the multiple levels of complexity here, the difficulty of getting at what's going on and the different motives that people have for being involved in this case. And I thought the point about language was so interesting as well. And there's still an ambiguity 
in a euphemism in the way that we talk about people sleeping together. And we take it for granted, we know what that means. But if historians were looking at cases 500 years from now, and it talked about people sleeping together, you can see that they also may have a question over what exactly that meant. And we can't necessarily understand the language of the time, because quite often we're hampered by our own understanding of that language. I think it's interesting here that the problem of language is one that the magistrates in any criminal court face themselves. How can they prosecute a crime when the object of that crime is a moving target? And this allows the witnesses and the accused and the accusers quite a wide range of flexibility in how they make their charges before a court and how they defend themselves. And in this case, sleeping together may be a sign of friendship. It may be a sign of some kind of hierarchy of subordination. Here, I think these young men want a job in the monastery. And it seems like the condition for a job in the monastery is going to sleep with the porter, but they know the risks involved. So I think there's a very important problem here about social hierarchies and intimacy. And people are concerned. So the councils of the church in France issue decrees saying you really have to stop young people sleeping together in the same bed, especially the same sex. It's dangerous. It risks immoral behaviour. But that's what the church says should happen. But it's very hard as a historian to understand people's practices. What intimacy mean in their everyday lives? Here we haven't got a transparent window onto that, but at least we've got people talking about their intimate lives, their sexuality, but also crucially here, the violence and abuse they suffered. So those ways of talking about their everyday life are refracted to the sources. And it's fascinating for me because it maps in parallel in this instance into the cases I've looked at about young maidservants who are generally between the age of about 13 and sort of mid-20s who are being sexually assaulted or raped by the masters for whom they're working in various households as servants. And it's all about the fact that these people are living in this deeply patriarchal society where power is in the hands of these older men. And there will be certain instances in which there's clear case of rape, but then there's also cases where there's a sort of conditional consent, which nowadays would be recognised as rape, but certainly wasn't at the time, where there's a certain amount of complicity to get what they want. And one thinks of all the accusations that were made against Harvey Weinstein and all the young actresses whom he employed, but made them pay a price in order to get that employment. And it's a deeply complex situation of power relations that we're trying to engage with when we think about these things. I think it's a really important point. There's a clearly hierarchical economy of intimacy here. And when I started working these cases, I thought I'd be working on the history of homosexuality. In the end, actually, the debates around the Me Too movement were equally helpful in thinking about what was going on in the cases where they're more clearly examples of abuse and what, in many cases, I would say simply are rape cases. So another example is the case of Jean de Grassi, who is an Italian nobleman who lives in Paris, essentially is a soap merchant. He sells soap back and forth in Paris and Lyon. And he is accused of raping his servant, Denise Louis. So there it's a situation that you're describing from the records you've worked on in Nîmes, or that Judy Harbour has worked in Lyon, or Laura Gowing in a London case and elsewhere in England, of domestic abuse within the household. And that trial was one labelled in the courts as sodomy. Partly that helps explain the vernacular use of the term, because the same record said that Grassi corrupted Denise Louis against nature or from behind. So essentially, that's an example of anal rape. That's the one case of that sort 
that I've seen labeled as a sodomy trial, but the dynamics of it are that of a rape trial. Uh, Denise Louis worked in Gracie's household, but other servants tried to bribe her not to denounce the crime. Gracie turns the tables on her and says that she's lying, says that his enemies have corrupted her. In that particular case, during the interrogations which happened in Paris, Gracie accuses Louis of taking bribes from his rival, and his rival allegedly turns up to the women's prison in the Petit Châtelet in Paris and tries to throw a bribe in a bag of coins through the window of the women's prison. He misses, it hits the window, it falls down, coins scatter all over the courtyard, and he ends up putting them in a basket and winching them up on a rope. And so that's the allegation. But also, she says back, actually Grassi turns up and tries to enter the women's chamber, ends up cornering her in the kitchens of the prisons, and threatening to kill her if she persists with the allegations. So these really clear points of power hierarchies and class dynamics are directly relevant to the cases. And that case was prosecuted formally by the court as a sodomy case. But I think it relates much more clearly to an obvious case of rape and sexual abuse in the household. And there are a disturbing number of cases that definitely involve children or boys, or we have sometimes their ages and sometimes just descriptive terms. So many of those cases are also featuring here. Definitely. One thing I tried to do when looking at the full sample of cases was look at who's being accused. What's their status? What's their rank in society? And one thing that came out quite clearly from that analysis was the sheer number of priests and schoolmasters accused. And in all those cases, they were accused of sexually abusing children. So one example is Nicolas Dadon, and he was a tutor at the University of Paris at the College of Cardinal Lemoine on the left bank. And he was accused of sexually abusing an 11-year-old boy called Nicolas Tour. And Nicolas Tour's father brought a charge before the Châtelet court, and that went on appeal to the Parlement. The witnesses in that case were the other boys who slept in Dadon's rooms in the college. So this is a room which was standard for universities at the time, where there was probably a room for sleeping in, a room for teaching in, lots of beds altogether. As far as I can tell from the case, there are at least four boys sleeping there and one servant. The servant is crucial in giving evidence. He says that Nicolas Dadon bribed with sweets the boys to sleep in his bed, and that's when he raped them and sexually abused them. And in that case, the 11-year-old boy, Nicolas Tour is brought to the criminal chamber of the Parc en Paris, and he's confronted face-to-face with Nicolas Dadon, with the magistrates there. They have no qualms about bringing the witnesses together. There's no witness protection, no support for them. But he says, that's the man that did this to me, and identifies him. And Nicolas Dadon was one of the cases that where the case ended up with a death sentence. Although there was some gossip about political wrangling behind the scenes that his allies in the Catholic League, the Catholic party in the end of the wars of religion, were trying to get him a pardon. That didn't happen. He was condemned to death. So that's one of the cases that involved much more clearly sexual abuse of children. And yet the courts label them with exactly the same term as cases that look more like examples of same-sex desire or that are actually heterosexual rape too. The sense of the term sodomy is so diverse and so imprecise. I'm struck by the bravery of that 11-year-old boy. But you do have one case that isn't labelled sodomy, but does involve alleged sex between women. That's a really interesting case. It concerns Claude de Lespine. It's a case from 1590 in Paris. 
and she is accused of witchcraft, disguising herself in men's clothes, and other notorious crimes. And that phrasing does link to the kind of phrasing you'd see in sodomy cases, villainous crimes, wicked sins. It's deliberately ambiguous. She's accused of having carnal commerce with a seamstress, of dressing as a man when she was teaching in the school and playing insalubrious games in bed with a girl, and also of having sex with the devil. So actually, overall, there aren't many references to witchcraft in any of these sodomy cases. I think that's the only one I've seen in the full sample. But it's interesting that it's not formally labelled as sodomy. That might be because simply it's labelled as witchcraft, Mm. which puts it in a separate category. Mm. But there's a bigger debate here that historians and researchers in the period have thought about. Why are there not so many examples of same-sex desire between women that come before courts labelled as the crime of sodomy? One, I think, quite plausible hypothesis that's difficult to prove is that same-sex desire between women is not seen as threatening to the patriarchy in the way that it might do when it's a case of same-sex desire between men. There's no question of the phallus involved here. One hypothesis for why same-sex desire between women is not prosecuted in the same way that some of these cases of same-sex desire between men are prosecuted is partly legal. The terms of canon law, the law of the church, and Roman law, the law of secular courts, that discusses directly sex between men. So for example, the book of Leviticus in the King James Version says, if a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. So that's about a man who lieth with mankind. It doesn't explicitly reference same-sex love between women. So that might be one reason here. It might be that people just didn't find it threatening. Women don't have the same kind of social authority or power that, for example, Logerie does as the portrait of an abbey, or Dadon does as a tutor in the University of Paris. Claude de Lespine, the allegations that took place in her case, happened among her circle of friends while her husband was away, and the interrogations are quite short. So somehow this does not trouble the courts quite so much, but it's a problem because we have so little evidence of same-sex desire between women in actual cases that come before the courts that it's very hard to evaluate why. We can only hypothesise, I suppose. Can we have a think about what the evidence tells us about how non-elite ordinary people thought about or spoke about their sexuality? I think that's one of the most important points about these records overall. They give a chance for us as historians to read people talking about sexuality in general. They're not giving a confessional account of what's happening in their sex lives. They're responding to questions put to them by the court. But it does show more generally how they will discuss sexuality. They often discuss it with euphemisms. They don't like to use direct language. Maybe this is because of the shame of saying certain words before the court. I think a lot of the people involved in these cases who are peasants, who've come from rural France, are suddenly in Paris in front of these magistrates wearing grand robes in a palace. How can they say penis or sex or rape in these cases? They say, oh, his thing, or they say front or behind, as if with a woman, as if I was his wife. They use euphemism to get around the problem of speaking directly about sex and sexuality. Sometimes this becomes more clear with insults. They will directly quote what someone yelled at in the streets, for example. That's when the word 
bugger is common as an insult. This has been spotted by historians in looking at insults in other kinds of cases too. It's interesting how rare people follow that up with a formal charge of any kind of sexuality. It's part of the language of insult. So instead, the euphemistic language of the courts to discuss sodomy is reflected in the imprecision of people's language in testimony. But they may say, for example, who they slept with, who they met, where and when. One case is more playful with this, though. This is the case of Guillaume Dubois, who's a salt merchant, and Henri Cochy, who's a porter in La Rochelle. And Guillaume Dubois has turned up in La Rochelle as part of his travels for exchanging salt, and he stops at a tavern, and he's drinking wine, and he meets Cochy, the porter, and they clearly go to a back room. And some people saw this and watched through the window, watched through the keyhole. And the witnesses said they saw Dubois and Cochet pushing on a bed. Again, a euphemistic term. Essentially, they're saying they're having sex with one another on a bed in this room. They say, oh, no, we're sat at the table. Oh, no, we're drinking together. The witnesses also say they saw Dubois and Cochet naked, or at least with their trousers down, with their hose down. And they say reply, oh, we can explain that. Actually, Cochet, the porter, says Dubois, the merchant, just owed him money for the drink. And so to tease him, he pulled at his purse strings, the probably leather coin purse that was tied to his belt. So he pulled at the belt, say, oh, you owe me money. But actually he pulled too hard and his hose fell down and the coin purse spilt money all over the floor. And he quickly pulled his hose back up again. And I read that and thought, that's ridiculous. And then I thought a bit further about it and thought that that's a really risky thing to say because in the iconography of the time a coin purse is often depicted as essentially a metaphor for testicles in images of men paying for sex with prostitutes the depiction of a prostitute would be groping the coin purse and that shows the wickedness and depravity of that man who's paying for sex so they're basically joking about sex in a courtroom when they risk a death sentence but I think partly they know that the evidence is not very clear against them. The witnesses only saw them through a crack in the door, through the window. They have a half proof. They didn't confess under torture. The Pavlo magistrates sent them back to La Rochelle and there was no punishment. And they probably laughed about it afterwards because I think that they're very knowing in their use of language here. So they can joke and play with terms about sex in the courtroom without fear of repercussion in a sense. That is astonishing because I've got this vivid impression now of peasants being awed in terms of how they might talk about sex before these august personages of the Parlement. But actually, the coin purse, the money spilt over the floor, we don't need to spell out, once again, let's be euphemistic, what they're talking about. But to do that in such a knowing way before these people is especially audacious. And it's not the only example of similar kinds of suggestion in the testimony. Another interesting case is of Louis Bouchard, the Baron d'Aubeterre. He's one of the very few nobles involved in the sample. Another stereotype of the period is that it was more common for elites to be gay men or have same-sex desire. Actually, very few elites are a part of the case. Aubeterre is accused basically by confidence tricksters, and one of them meets him in the church of Saint-Germain de l'Auxerrois in Paris, and according to the court testimony, this confidence stricter comes up to Aubeterre and says, I can tell you the most pleasant story in the world. I've been to Italy, I've been to Barbary in Spain. And later on, the man says that Aubeterre, I thought he wanted to do it with me. And later on, they essentially entrap Aubeterre. They want to bribe him to get money out of him. They set up a meeting 
with him in the Bois de Boulogne, then open fields, and they arrange for the archers of the Châtelet to emerge from the woods at just the moment when Orbiter was, as I say in the court testimony, lying on top of him. And that's the moment that he was arrested. In the end, their ploy to bribe him and get money out of him backfires, and Orbiter is condemned to death for sodomy. The two confidence tricksters who entrapped him in the first place have a serious fine. A lot of these cases seem to hinge on how one launches a case. This is a big question, but why were people bringing charges before a criminal court in this period? That is a really interesting question. In a way, that's a core question for our research in, in any kind of example of cases. But it's particularly hard to begin a sodomy prosecution. I think partly it's expensive. So the plaintiff, the person bringing the case in the first place, normally is one who finances it. They pay for the witnesses. They pay for their travel if they need to testify again in Paris. They need to have a really serious reason to prosecute somebody. And often they do so after a period of time where they build up a grudge or have a strong reason they want to condemn someone. That might be quite self-interested. Historians talk about people's uses of justice. On the other hand, we might also say that in many cases, for example, in theft, homicide, whatever else it might be, they do have a sense of what justice means to them and to their time. And I think it is appropriate to go to a court. I'm sure the judges think the second one is much more common than the first one. It should not be private enmity. It should be a sense of justice that leads someone to, to prosecute. I think one limit on prosecution, especially in sodomy cases, is a deep sense of shame of talking about sex and sexuality. And here, it depends on what kind of case it is. But I think there's a difficulty of anybody in this period of talking about themselves as a rape victim. This is a problem that all criminal justice systems face. I often think here, in the modern comparisons, this is a way where modern courts face exactly the same problems as pre-modern courts. And frankly, I'm not sure if they've got much better solutions in many cases. There are clearly important issues about protecting the integrity of a witness that modern courts um, struggle to grapple with. So encouraging somebody to say before a criminal court that somebody forced into sex, raped them, or that a man had sex with them, is difficult for them to say, to announce, to find the words to say in a courtroom. But as in the case of Pierre Logerie, it's also very dangerous because they will denounce a case as an example of being forced into sex, they would say. Often we would classify these as rape cases. On the other hand, they face the possible counter-allegation that they were consenting to homosexual sex, in which case they are also culpable. So for those reasons, it's expensive, complicated, and very risky to denounce a sodomy case in the first place, which I think explains why there are so few cases at all in the criminal archives. So reflecting on all of this work that you've done and all the things we've discussed, what do you think these cases can tell us about the study of the history of sexuality? I think they can tell us lots of things about the history of sexuality, but I think one thing to begin with as a historian is they tell us we need to study the documents to understand what the documents can and cannot tell us. I think here it was very important for me to give an equal weight in my analysis to what the people in the courtroom are saying, the witnesses, their lives and the communities they lived in on the one hand, and on the other hand to the lives of the judges and the magistrates and crucially their clerks and scribes who write the records down because in order to understand what someone is telling the court about their sexual lives, the dangers in their communities, the conflicts that happened, the abuses in their society, 
they fit their answers and their testimony to the terms the court expects of them, to the standards they have to meet to prove a crime or to defend themselves from an allegation of crime. So both parties have equal weight. That means that in a way to understand the history of sexuality in a way that does make sense in everyday language from the pre-modern period, we also need to understand the very elite, erudite, learned, legal and theological language of the judges. Without these records, we have other kinds of sources. For example, plays, there we have literary evidence written down often by elite authors. I mean, elite is a very broad category here, someone who's literate enough to compose a play. That may have advantages in being more complex, expansive, knowing, informed of all sorts of debates around sexuality. It's not the voice of a peasant from Morigny or a schoolboy from Paris or a baron discussing sex with a confidence trickster in a church or in a park. So any source we look at as a historian has its own complexity and opportunities. Personally, I'm very drawn to criminal archives because of that promise of the direct evidence of the speech of a non-elite. On the other hand, I'm hyper aware when I'm reading those cases that I'm actually looking at the scrawled and sometimes difficult to decipher handwriting of a really quite wealthy clerk in a black robe in a palace in the centre of Paris. Thank you, Tom, for such an evocative look into a world that's so hard to access, what people are doing in their private lives, and then how that's being talked about before the law. But you've shown us a masterclass in quite how to do that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna, for the conversation. It was extremely interesting. Tom's article in the historical journal, which is called A Sodomy Scandal on the Eve of the French Wars of Religion, and is all about Pierre Logerie, that porter of the Benedictine Abbey who was convicted of sodomy, is freely available to everyone online. Just search Tom Hamilton and the historical journal. After, of course, you've subscribed to Not Just the Tudors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.